Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello, history friends. Welcome to the Franco-Dutch War, episode 24. That's right, we reached the end of it. This is the very last episode in the series, and it's the very last episode of our current episodic schedule before we unleash the fifth birthday on you guys. A reminder that that lands on all of you on the 18th of May 2017, which is pretty darn near. A few days, in fact, a few days away. I'd like to thank you guys for listening to this entire episode and all of its 24 episodes glory, and please let me know if you enjoyed me telling this story to you, because it's a story that, as you may have noticed if you searched for it in any kind of sense, it's not been told all that often, so I really enjoyed going through it, and in many ways it's the podcast that I'd wanted to do for a very long time, and we're by no means finished with Louis Fourteenth yet. In September of this year we'll be taking our story back up and going through what's called the Long War, which essentially was waged from the early 1680s to the late 1690s. It's one of those periods of history that has loads of disparate events and disparate conflicts kind of tied in all together. So I hope you're looking forward to that. A reminder, of course, that this podcast is on Patreon. So if you would like to support us on the eve of our fifth birthday before all of that lands on you guys, in fact, if you'd even like to send a bit of change my way because I now leveled up as an adult and I'm married now by the time you're listening to this and I'm also hopefully still on my honeymoon at this stage it's kind of hard to tell exactly when I'm going to release this last episode I'd like to make it a kind of party special atmosphere so who knows but I may be back I may be still in Lake Como but wherever I am I am now a fully fledged adult I'm no longer the 20 year old Zach who five years ago tried to tell you about Bannockburn I'm now 25 years old, and although in many ways I haven't changed, in other ways I have. And I'd like to thank you guys for being with me all the way along. So yeah, patreon.com forward slash when diplomacy fails if you're looking for ways to support this podcast. For everything else, remember to be fit, guys, because you've been doing it so well all these years. Remember, to support this podcast, the best thing you can do is to listen to it as you're doing now. So if you don't feel like going to any extra special effort that's fine. Thanks for downloading it, thanks for listening to it, and thanks for furthering the cause of history, because When Diplomacy Fails is where history thrives. That's right, guys. We're doing it. We are nearly finished the Franco-Dutch War. Alrighty, and a small reminder, of course, that because I'm in, well, indisposed, you guys won't be hearing the patrons for this week. The patrons that have been kind of ignored all this time, no offense, guys, All of you guys will be recorded on the 18th of May for that introduction episode for the project that I have planned. So don't worry, you'll get your comeuppance, you just won't get them quite yet. I appreciate your patience, 
And I really hope you enjoy this episode. As you can see, because it's the last episode in the series, it's a pretty big one. All right, let's stop rambling. For once, I'm going to restrain myself, well, as much as I can do, and just present you this final episode of the Franco-Dutch War. Thanks very much, and enjoy, guys. Welcome back to the War History Friends for the final time. In the last few episodes, we've been brought up to speed with Charles II's struggles, how his never-ending quest for funds and grants led him to engage in contradictory and controversial policies. He lied to Parliament, he duped his subjects, and he sought subsidies off Britain's continental rivals, all in the name of being able to pay for the country's armed forces and perhaps wield a bit of financial independence for himself. In the last episode, we pretty much concluded Charles's war experience, which began, arguably, at the moment he returned amidst great splendour and pomp, not to mention high hopes in 1660. Yet as we discovered last time, though London seemed to participate in the moves towards a quadruple alliance in 1678, Britain was merely one cog in a machine that all wanted or required different things from Louis XIV's France. Thus the efforts to uniformly effect a peace were made difficult by the national interests of each of the major actors. The Dutch, for example, they, they had been offered separate terms by Louis since the 15th of April, while the Spanish and Austrian Habsburgs looked to deal with Paris from a different position. And Charles, as we know, was more interested in using his realm's position as a bargaining chip to wrest more funds from Louis than he was in actually declaring war. Although, of course, it's hard to define Charles, since he tended to flip-flop more than an actual flip-flop. If you're ready then, this is the episode in which we conclude these disparate threads. We bring the narratives together and reveal that, although it had taken all this time to arrive at such a destination, Europe was no closer to peace than it had been in 1672. Now, while the treaties were of course hammered out, troubling clouds remained on the horizon. Yet, what no power could deny was the fact that behind these clouds, and around which their interests seemed to revolve, was the Sun King. If the Franco-Dutch War meant anything for the continent, then, it meant that, amidst the failed hopes, fleeting triumphs, and horrific losses, Louis XIV had definitively arrived. Let's see how it all went down, then, as I take you to mid-1678 in this, the final episode of the Franco-Dutch War. seems to me that one can hardly view all his works and efforts without some sense of gratitude, nor without being stirred by the love for the public will which inspired them. Louis XIV did more good for his country than twenty of his predecessors together. Voltaire, writing in 1751.
William of Orange was plainly in a bind. Although his career and prospects for bettering his position amongst his wider extended family had improved since 1672, the initial Dutch zeal for resistance to France seemed to dip once Louis's armies had evacuated their lands. The greatly hampered merchant cities of Holland, which still contained the bulk of the once formidable Regent Party, did not relish the prospect of further worsening their incomes for the sake of some Spanish towns, which the French seemed to seize at will from 1676 onwards. It was the French seizure of Ghent and then Ypres in March 1678 that seemed to have represented the last straw. From this point, the regions within Amsterdam, Rotterdam and elsewhere invested their resources into the furthering of the peace party and insisted that France could not be defeated in the current conditions of warfare. The Dutch, it had to be said, were suffering from the kind of military exhaustion that could only result from years of consistently draining warfare at the head of a coalition which was neither as united or effective as it appeared on paper. Utterly opposed to the concept of giving any ground at all was William of Orange, who insisted that the fall of Ghent and Ypres in March was just the beginning and that France had to be resisted at all costs. But then William of Orange was plainly in a bind. Try as he might, he had lost the war for the hearts and minds of the peace party, as this party gained considerable ground in the last year. The renowned historian of Dutch history, K.D. Haley, wrote an article entitled The Anglo-Dutch Reproachment of 1677, and within it outlined the ups and downs of the Dutch fortunes in war. He wrote, The successes of William's first two years in power had been clouded by later disappointments. Charles had been obliged to make a separate peace, and a coalition against Louis had come into being. But the combined forces, far from regaining anything, were unable to prevent French armies overrunning the Spanish province of Franche Comte and capturing several important fortresses in Flanders. In August 1676, William's failure to recapture Maastricht was a bad blow. The coalition did not work well together, and the Dutch had many justified complaints against the poor cooperation of their allies, and especially against the dilatoriness and incompetence of Spain. The French were able to put into the field better equipped armies earlier in the year under undivided control, and further Allied losses in Flanders seemed probable. The successes of Denmark and the Great Elector against Louis' Swedish ally could not offset the danger in this crucial area. Moreover, in Amsterdam and other cities, there were signs of the growth of a peace party, dissatisfied with war taxation, discontented with the efforts of their allies, and suspicious of William's personal ambitions. Indeed, the underrated aspect of the Franco-Dutch War, but a fact which quickly became apparent to us as we detailed the conflict, was that France was in a far better position to field armies large enough to make effective changes to the status quo. The coalition of the Habsburgs, the Dutch and sometimes Brandenburg on the other hand, were less capable of pooling their resources and acting as a unit. Petty jealousies, geographic concerns and the logistical complications inherent in moving large bodies of men to the same spot cannot be understated and thus Louis was, in spite of the arming of the continent against him, far better positioned to take the initiative, which he did on many occasions. It also had to be said that the initial eagerness for warfare seemed to evaporate from the Dutch psyche once the French evacuated their lands and London simultaneously evacuated the conflict. Perhaps feeling less pressurised, the merchant classes of the Republic may have felt content to allow the other, more militarily capable states to take the lead now. 
Yet as we have gathered, Spain was in no position to make this commitment, while the Holy Roman Emperor was consistently distracted both by his own princess's political agendas and by his own concerns about the Ottomans. These two factors contributed to effectively negate the impact of the Habsburgs, and when Sweden invaded Brandenburg in 1675, although the Great Elector was soon on hand and Leopold declared war on Sweden to boot, his subsequent campaigns against Stockholm sufficiently distracted Berlin so that Brandenburg became a non-entity in the war against France, which of course had been Louis' aim all along. In a sense, the Franco-Dutch War was an example of how to not wage a coalition war, and we must remember that even while it is often seen as a foolish miscalculation and a disastrous waste of resources on the part of Louis, it was, to a large extent, a victorious war for him and for France. Louis would effectively lead the way from 1676 onwards, and he'd consolidate French holdings in its border with the Spanish Netherlands, while preventing the Imperials from ever sufficiently threatening France along the Rhine. With Raimondo Montecuccoli's retirement after 1675, the enthusiasm really seemed to evaporate out of the Imperial War effort, and while the Emperor did contribute troops to the field along the Rhine, and settlements such as Philipsburg were seized from the French, no grand campaigns were ever launched against the French, as the French continued to support against the Spanish Netherlands. With each new season seemed to bring new French successes in that area, however minor they were, and they served to chip gradually away at the Spanish presence in Flanders. So surely it was only a matter of time at this pace before Louis overtook the Spanish in this region altogether. John A. Lynn noted that in terms of French army size, the Dutch war high hit 279,610, as indicated by a key document from 1678. For France, this included 219,250 infantry and 60,360 cavalry, while 116,370 of the total served in garrisons. If you can even attempt to wrap your head around those figures, this was an insanely high number of soldiers, and the Allies simply couldn't keep up with it, nor could they match the French propensity for well-organised campaigns, courtesy of Louvois, or the engineering marvels of Vauban, or even the military command of the late Marshal Turenne. We must accept the actual supremacy of France during the Franco-Dutch War, as hard and perhaps dissatisfying as this may be. That is what granted Louis the moniker of Sun King after all. Even while I have noted that Louis faced into a war that he didn't want, and that this must represent a failure in his foreign policy, we have to admit that it is because of the strength of France that Louis was able to endure this miscalculation, almost despite himself, and come out of the Peace of Nijmegen in August 1678, technically, if you want to measure the gains that he acquired, on the winning side. Indeed, if we are to measure the war purely in terms of what France achieved within it, it's difficult to arrive at any other conclusion than that which states that France, and by extension Louis, was the victor. In many ways this is hard to swallow, not least for me, because I expected Louis to get his comeuppance after behaving so arrogantly and wastefully in 1672. These pigeons would come home to roost for Louis XIV, you may be interested to know, but not quite yet. At the same time, though, considering French supremacy and the general weakness of the Allies in a unified sense, it has to be said that French peace terms were quite reasonable. The historian Clyde Gross noted that, In general, the French terms had a certain fairness, were tactically phrased, and unquestionably were quite timely. 
Timeliness was of course key since during March 1678, the Dutch diplomat Conrad von Buningen was involved in discussions in London to create the Quadruple Alliance. That the Quadruple Alliance proved illusory had much to do with the plain unwillingness of the States General in the Netherlands to grant von Buningen proper powers to negotiate, and it soon became apparent that the Dutch were stalling for time. As Charles urged van Buningen to think of war, van Buningen reported home to a Dutch government which was itself determined to bring about an end to that war. We should bear in mind that the Dutch were mostly untouched by the Franco-Dutch War by this point, and while their lands had suffered and their incomes had certainly been damaged also, they were not under the same military threat that Spain endured. William of Orange had also vastly improved the Dutch ability to defend itself, but defence and attack were not similar aims, and after having relied on the Habsburgs for the last few unimpressive years, The Hague was just not willing to do so any longer. It was clear from the negotiations that Madrid and Vienna again expected the Dutch to carry much of the offensive burdens of the alliance, something which they had already done since 1672. This was immensely unpopular within the States General, increasingly dominated by the Regent Peace Party and empowered by the general war weariness which had permeated the Republic. With the massive French gains in Ghent and Ypres, the Dutch perception of the Spanish ability to resist sunk to an all-time low, and the Dutch came to see the necessity of another campaign in Flanders to essentially bail the Spanish out as one of high cost and low reward. Although commitments had been made in late 1673 to never make a separate peace with France, the Dutch were running out of reasons to maintain the war, while at the same time Louis was showing no signs of slowing down. Since it was well known that Paris also desired peace, or was at least open to negotiations, and had been partaking in them in Nijmegen along with everyone else since the spring of 1677, the peace party in the Dutch Republic gained further credit. Through a combination of Dutch fears of French power, the dread of having to endure another thankless campaign in Flanders, the frustration at its allies' ineffectiveness, and the military and economic exhaustion of the country, Louis' aforementioned peace offers, made exclusively and tactfully to the Dutch on the 15th of April, 1678, must be seen as the Sun King's finest hour. Not only did Louis here abandon much of his earlier arrogance, but he demonstrated his tact and awareness of the situation, which he would rarely, it has to be said, be known for in other circumstances. The timeliness of the peace offers to the Dutch were complemented by the fact that, in return for such a peace, the Dutch would have to give virtually nothing in return, and they would in fact gain a favourable trade deal with Paris, which the economically depressed merchants in Amsterdam and the like eagerly upheld. The terms of the French peace offers are examined by Clyde Gross, who noted, France was willing to surrender to Spain, Ghent, Oudenaarde, Courtrai, Ath and Charleroi, but must retain Condé, Valenciennes and, most importantly of all, Ypres. This was not to be regarded merely as a basis for negotiations, but as a final concession, with the 10th of May as the time limit for its acceptance. While the Dutch debated these terms in the States General, William returned to The Hague accompanied by John Churchill, who aimed to put steel into the Dutch for future campaigns. John Churchill, of course, was under orders from London to keep the Dutch in the war mostly for the sake of Charles's interests. If the Dutch left the war, as we learned last time, the quadruple alliance, which Charles wished to beat Louis with, would have far less of an impact. It would have far less teeth in the mind of Louis. As it transpired, this effort and inspiration proved ineffective. 
By this point, William was coming to terms with the fact that his homeland was desperate for peace, and he could at least reconcile himself with the fact that Britain was closer to the Dutch Republic than it had ever been in the past. Despite the weighted nature of the French offers, and the fact that they expired on the 10th of May, it took much heated debate to reach an agreement in the States General, and much diplomatic work plainly needed to be done, as neither Madrid nor Vienna had yet been consulted. In a secret session of the 3rd of May then, the Dutch voted to ask France for an extension of time, and Louis XIV, assured that they were sincere and actually desired the time for necessary negotiations with their allies and weren't just delaying for the sake of preparing for more war, extended the time limit to the 15th of May, then to the 20th, and then to the 27th. Louis, it seemed, appreciated that he had reeled the Dutch in at last. Amidst these tense negotiations, the Dutch were inconvenienced by the presence of the Swedish ambassador in The Hague, who argued for Dutch support for Sweden's interests in the peace negotiations. It was quickly learned that Sweden had also sent a plenipotentiary to London with the same aim, and before long the French were notified of Stockholm's move as well. Occurring in early April 1678, Sweden's decision to send two of its most able diplomats to the British and Dutch were the result of Swedish fears that it was soon to lose the opportunity to recoup its own losses in the war, mostly to Brandenburg, but also to Denmark, and that France was about to abandon her on the world stage. Indeed, it has to be said that Sweden had not fared well since entering the war in late 1674. Brandenburg had rolled up the Swedish possessions and kicked the Swedes totally out of their German enclaves in Bremen and Pomerania, affecting a great victory for Berlin and imbuing the great elector, Frederick William, with much prestige. When French representatives in Nijmegen proved slow in listening to Swedish concerns, the decision was made in late March for Sweden to take matters into its own hands and negotiate independently of France. By doing so, Sweden seemed to threaten identification with the Dutch and British, and a resurrection of the vaunted Triple Alliance of old, but with far more serious implications. You see, by this point, Sweden was virtually the only ally that France could count upon in Europe, and thus much was made of these Swedish acts to Louis, who came to demand that Sweden be reimbursed at once. The historian Clyde Gross explains that this French desire to aid the Swedes effectively stonewalled negotiations across Europe, writing that Louis' inclusion of Sweden in the terms was thus a diplomatic move to encourage her allegiance. All realised the great injustice which the fulfilment of the clause would work to the great elector of Brandenburg, and on the 21st of April, the Allied representatives at The Hague met, disapproved of the French terms, and endeavoured strenuously. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. ...to persuade the Dutch not to accept... In time, it would become clear that the Swedish element, or Louis' determination to get the Swedes what the Swedes thought they deserved in the peace, proved to be the greatest obstacle to that peace. Louis insisted on returning virtually all of the lands that Sweden had lost to Berlin. The unfairness of this stipulation was not lost on the Dutch, but it transpired that the Dutch wanted peace more than they wanted justice for the great elector, who after all had largely abandoned them militarily after 1675 anyway. Although this feeling of selfishness, or whatever you want to call it on the part of the Dutch, didn't last long. The Dutch at this stage did send a diplomat to London to plead their case. In other words, to plead the fact that their country was exhausted and in the majority desirous of peace. At this news, Louis XIV instructed the Dutch that his armies were ready to move again on the 10th of May once the peace offer expired. In response to this, the States General voted to accept the peace offers if their allies would follow suit. Thus, Louis extended the deadline to the 15th of May, as we saw, to allow time for discussions, adding tactfully that he would extend it to the 18th of May and would extend it even further, and would refrain from further campaigns in Flanders if the Dutch would thus just make peace, even if they didn't do it with the approval of their allies. He would remain with his army in Ghent, Louis XIV said, until the 27th of May 1678, as his final offer effectively setting a stopwatch for the Dutch and their allies to get themselves together. This set other events in motion, as the Dutch now moved to bring about an end to the war that they were sick and tired of fighting. Despite his country's desire for peace, it seemed as though William of Orange blew between accepting the terms and desiring a better deal, so on the 14th of May he promptly hurried from his country house to The Hague to oppose sending any mission at all to Louis XIV, and although he was supported by the nobles and several important towns, the peace party, led by deputies from Amsterdam, was in the majority. William's opposition also weakened when he received several letters from the Dutch diplomatic mission in London, urging him to make peace, but the representatives of the Allies gave unwilling consent to the mission after receiving assurance that only a six-week truce and not peace would be discussed. On top of the aforementioned complications then, it seems that, rather than an instantaneous peace, Louis was angling first for a truce with the Dutch, whereupon the gains could be consolidated and the supremacy of France could be impressed upon the Allies. Perhaps he planned upon further military exercises after the expiration of the truce, but Louis bargained that the Dutch wouldn't test the waters for the sake of this fear, and he was largely correct. Although the Dutch representative initially pleaded in disposition and refused to meet with Louis, the States General urged him, notwithstanding his indisposition, to travel to the French camp at Veteran in East Flanders, where Louis awaited the Dutch plenipotentiaries. 
After five hours of intensive negotiations, the Dutch plenipotentiary agreed to the truce, and some reports even claimed that the Dutch committed to abandon their allies if their allies would not follow suit. News of this agreement wrested concessions out of Madrid, who signalled that they would also agree to the truce and the general peace agreements as well. While Brandenburg, Denmark and the Duchy of Lorraine maintained their own policies of resistance, these were mostly to no avail. To jog our memories from the last episode, we should bear in mind that as soon as it became clear that the Dutch would accept the French terms, Charles II had made his own peace with Louis XIV. Except for some existential agitators for war, the chief promoters of war with France officially were Danby and Charles's brother James, the Duke of York. We've already examined the long-sustained policy of the Earl of Danby, while York himself had a family interest in the house of some military ambitions, and at times a desire to moderate anti-Catholic zeal within Parliament by supporting the cause of Protestantism, in a sense, on the continent. As for Charles II, he's been characteristically difficult to pin down one way or another, but there is no reason to believe that he at any time desired to go to war altogether, except perhaps to mollify his rebellious subjects, to build his army for domestic emergencies, or to invite large French subsidies as the price of his neutrality. In other words, he didn't necessarily want to wage war because he wanted to wage war, he wanted to make it look like he wanted to wage war because he wanted certain prizes from Louis in return. Ah, Charles, never change. It should also be added that, despite the apparently threatening joint ambitions of the building quadruple alliance towards France, Several unfortunate events had since drained the patience of those who desired war. The quarrel over Britain sending troops to Ostend had led to hard feelings between England and Spain. Similarly, the Dutch rejected London's offer for a defensive alliance and the English plan of naval cooperation. In British domestic terms, the support of Parliament was questionable, while after March 1678 it was apparent that the war was now going strongly in favour of Louis. The general trend throughout April and May then had it that Charles realised his neutrality was less favourable or of less concern to France, so then Charles tried to appear more bellicose and threaten war as a last result. A significant part of this policy was to encourage the genuine warmongers in London, such as Danby and James. Thus we come to the final shift in Charles's policy, whereupon he realised in mid-May that the Dutch were eager for peace, so he saw two to cash in on his own neutrality before it was too late. Within three days of learning of the new developments in the Dutch Republic, Charles had sent an agent to France with a peace and subsidy project drafted by the king himself and by the French ambassador, Barillon. Therein, Charles agreed to the French terms, offered to use his influence upon the Allies in favour of peace, and promised to desert them and maintain neutrality if they did not make peace within two months. As compensation, he was to receive 6 million livres annually for three years, the first year to begin on the 1st of January 1678, in other words, straight away, and the first semi-annual instalment to be paid within one month of the signing of the treaty. When Charles tried to make one last go of it in Parliament, in other words, to get Parliament on side for the subsidies he needed, the result was intense embarrassment, as Clyde Gross noted, After hearing the King's speech, the Commons at once demanded a sight of the offensive alliance with the States and criticised it mercilessly. They next went off on religious tangents and made redress of grievances a prerequisite to further grants of money. They attacked Danby and Lauderdale 
and accused the king of planning a coup d'etat on ministerial advice. They objected to the maintenance of an army without a war, but they would vote no money for disbandment. It is not surprising, even two days before the English agent returned home from France, that the Duke of York advised William of Orange to make peace. Charles, after rushing through every other aspect of his foreign policy and his domestic policy, now rushed to make something out of Britain's commitment to peace before the Dutch removed themselves of the war and made the British threats seem less effective. What followed was his hurried acceptance of the peace terms, as Louis had previously offered to the Dutch, which meant that Louis's conquests received their further blessing from Europe's courts, which of course added further pressure on Madrid, Vienna and Berlin at the negotiations underway in Nijmegen. Danby made sure, before he totally approved of the treaty, to acquire an alteration of its preamble, so that it would make it appear as though the Dutch had forced London to make peace against its will, an alteration which demonstrated Danby's belief in the need for Charles to save face. What followed this was a hilarious incident that demonstrated just how in fear of their position British statesmen were in this era. Although the treaty had obviously plainly been approved, it required the signature of a significant minister to go through, such as Danby or Lauderdale, for example, for it to pass into law. Yet neither man was willing to sign it in case it was used against him at a later date. When Charles had the bright idea to bring the treaty to William Temple and get him to sign it, they found William Temple in bed, supposedly indisposed, obviously having predicted that he would be used to take the fall. Admitting his difficulties to the French ambassador, Barillon informed Charles that his own signature would suffice, so Charles went ahead and finally put historians out of their misery, signing the treaty into British law on the 27th of May, 1678, effectively removing Britain from the equation going forward. Just as everything seemed to be going according to plan, with the Dutch and British apparently eager for total peace, Louis characteristically overstepped the mark. Having conveniently ignored the issue of Swedish compensation up to this point, since it last flared up a few months before, as we saw, the issue was resurrected in Nijmegen, in negotiations between the Dutch and French. Here, the French stipulated that they would hold some border towns of Flanders in trust until Sweden was compensated, and in addition to this, French soldiers would be garrisoned in the Duchy of Cleve, on the border with Brandenburg, until Sweden received its dues. This was a step far too far. In the private letter of the Dutch plenipotentiary at Nijmegen to Holland's Grand Pensionary, much was made of the fact that there was this new unreasonableness of the French to the proceedings of the states and the over-great forwardness they had showed to the peace, and also to assurances which he had understood the French had received from some merchants in Amsterdam that, though their demands were so high and extravagant, yet the town and the other towns would comply with them wholly. The idea that Spain would surrender a series of towns until Sweden received Pomerania and Bremen was an impossible request for Spain to accept, and Madrid began cozying up to Berlin, which in turn drew the previously disparate elements of the threatened quadruple alliance back together. In The Hague, just like that, William of Orange's war party now seemed thrust back into favour. What had Louis XIV done? Had he truly misjudged the situation to such an extent? Back in London, now Charles even seemed back at square one again. Although Danby and Charles desired a peaceful settlement, both were obdurate on the point of immediate surrender of the additional towns to Spain, and the Duke of York, as usual, lost his head in enthusiasm for war. 
Parliament, on the other hand, seemed a hopeless tool with which to prevent war, for all MPs were by now anticipating a long and early prorogation, and as a result many MPs had already left London, and to add to this, there was a general lack of interest among those MPs that remained behind. Had it not been for these new demands, the six-week truce period would certainly have compelled Madrid, London, The Hague and eventually even Berlin to agree to a general peace, yet now all felt pushed into a corner yet again. William Temple was now informed that he could assure the Dutch of England's utmost support in whatever transpired, and after much negotiations with the already war-weary Dutch, much to the surprise even of William of Orange, the Dutch fell in line behind London and signed an alliance with Britain on the 25th of July 1678. Under its new terms, Paris had two weeks to drop its Swedish requests and Spanish border town demands, or there would be war again. This ultimatum was handed to a confused and then furious Louis, while William of Orange congratulated William Temple on his hard work, and went himself to lead the Dutch army near Mons, where the French were also gathering. By the 28th of July 1678 then, Clyde Groves was able to note that, there is every reason to believe that France, after seeing the effect of this Swedish demand on the impending war against an alliance strengthened by England's might, was doing her utmost to retire gracefully and without humiliation. For his part, the Earl of Danby now took the surprising step of cooperating with his old nemesis, the French ambassador Barillon, and the two men now pressured the Swedish ambassador in London to release France from her bonds. By doing so, France could save face and the war which was implied by the expiration of the Anglo-Dutch ultimatum would no longer be necessary. By now Danby seemed to have accepted that Parliament would never have cooperated to support Charles in the event of war, and thus his already confusing behaviour becomes even more so, as he plainly sided with Barillon from this point onwards, propelled forward by the additional hope that, if he acted quickly enough, Louis XIV would, again, grant Charles the subsidies that had once been agreed upon. Then, as if this wasn't enough, a further complication was added, because on the 29th of July, 1678, one of Barillon's agents in Nijmegen posed as an agent of Sweden, and informed William Temple that Sweden would accept the latest round of agreements aimed at limiting her compensation, in return for British guarantees of Spanish and Dutch neutrality. In other words, Ambassador Barillon was trying to use all of the cunning and guile he possessed at his disposal to deconstruct the new Anglo-Dutch alliance. This of course threw a spanner into the works, but Louis himself also worked to undermine it, offering the Dutch another tantalising chance to discuss peace terms, separately from Britain. This temptation was resisted, but it had the effect of encouraging the Dutch at Nijmegen, and they informed the French plenipotentiary there on the 3rd of August, that only a week remained before their ultimatum expired and an Anglo-Dutch force, as per the terms of that recently signed alliance, would be forced to march against Paris. This threat against the French to get on with things in the world of diplomacy seemed to do the trick. On the 5th of August, after all, William journeyed to the army near Mons under the impression that the ultimatum was soon to expire and that further manoeuvres would soon prove necessary to force a peace on the French. If we consider this, we must accept the fact that William expected an Anglo-Dutch war to be launched against the French at this point. With William gone, though, the French plenipotentiaries in Nijmegen may have expected the Dutch tone to calm a little, but it didn't. The Dutch remained stubborn on the issue of Swedish compensation, 
but the French plenipotentiary, a man called Estrades, had one last card up his sleeve. In his communications with Louis XIV, Estrades pleaded his position in the face of Anglo-Dutch intransigence. Louis had relented on the issue of total Swedish compensation, but he argued that a conference should be set up to discuss the matter before the peace was agreed at. When the Dutch failed to respond in any way to this suggestion of a conference, Louis XIV then totally relented, accepting only a vague commitment within the peace treaty that he posed to Estrades to grant Sweden a fair deal. On the morning of the 9th of August, when the Dutch met with Estrades and his peers, the Frenchman pretended as though Louis still wished to see Sweden compensated. It was only when the Dutch stormed about, claiming that an Anglo-Dutch force was rearing to go in 24 hours, that Estrades, having believed them, gave in himself and presented Louis's actual offer. Feeling as though they gained something which Louis was in fact already willing to give, the Dutch slowly came around to the idea of this 11th hour peace deal, despite the embarrassment it would inflict upon London, after Charles had essentially abandoned Louis's subsidies for its sake. The French and Dutch then seemed to lock themselves away in private at Nijmegen, and at 12pm on the 10th of August 1678, the French and Dutch plenipotentiaries signed the Treaty of Nijmegen amongst themselves. Clyde Groves noted that, News of the treaty reached The Hague and London to the surprise of most people who expected a general peace, to the disgust of some who opposed any sort of peace, and to the downright satisfaction of the Dutch alone, many of whom yearned for any reasonable terms. The signing of this treaty proved to be the definite statement that the differing camps required to effect an actual proper peace. After months of dancing around with measures and countermeasures, amidst scenes at Nijmegen which were reminiscent of Westphalia for their intricacies and complexities, the French and Dutch had voted to officially end their war, which had begun in such different circumstances six years and four months before. William Temple was chastised for failing to prevent a humiliation of British diplomacy, or for proving unable to protect Charles's sought-after opportunities for a French subsidy. Furthermore, the Spanish declared their own sworn intentions never to accept the Treaty of Nijmegen at all. William of Orange, as we know, fought the Battle of St. Denis over the 14th to 15th of August 1678, reportedly unaware that the treaty had been signed. All of these facts certainly demonstrated that not all were happy with the official Dutch Act, and that some powers or actors had other plans, but in time they would all come around and follow the Dutch example. The Dutch mediated the peace between the French and Spanish, so that by the 19th of September, Madrid and Paris were at peace once more. Similarly, on the 26th of January 1679, Sweden was brought to make peace with the Holy Roman Empire, while the following October, the Dutch and Swedes, a comparatively quiet front in the conflict, were also brought to an official peace. So it was that the gloriously and intensely magnificent warmongering displays of Louis XIV had come to such a complicated and anticlimactic end, it has to be said, in the halls of Nijmegen. Louis' miscalculation at the last moment ensured that Europe was not willing to totally roll over, and it almost ensured that another war was resurrected at even worse terms than the original conflict. And in this we can certainly argue that Louis XIV had not given up overstepping the mark, Yet, while he did not acquire all that he desired for his Swedish ally, and nor could he retain all the towns he had conquered in Flanders, 
it was clear that Louis XIV had arrived. There could be no doubt among the courts of Europe, having examined the final desperate negotiations and the extent to which all diplomacy seemed to revolve around the inclinations of the King of France, that Louis's realm was the most supreme it had been at any time in its history. The war had thus brought about many eventualities. It demonstrated the resilience of the Dutch in the face of a hopeless struggle, it bore witness to Brandenburg's shattering of the Swedish military juggernaut, and it even presaged the kind of Anglo-Dutch cooperation that Louis so deeply feared. Yet, ultimately, the Franco-Dutch War brought about something else. From the 10th of August 1678, Louis XIV was no longer merely the King of France. He was now, unquestionably, the Sun King. For Europe now revolved around him, just as surely as that conflict had done, for six long years. Alright history friends, on that note, we have finally, after such a winding and hopefully, you'll agree, fascinating tale, brought the Franco-Dutch War to its end. How do we feel about it? To me, it's one of the most incredible wars I've ever covered, and it's indicative of exactly, well, what Louis XIV was capable of. Having learned what he did here, it was also clear that the newly crowned Sun King was not finished yet by a long mark. Before long, the King of France would be back, upsetting the peace of Europe and daring its powers to answer the challenge. When that happens, you can be sure that when diplomacy fails will be there, as for our next act we will examine the Long War, where every aspect of European warfare became intertwined, and the 17th century, so horrendous, so costly and so significant in its impact on the continent, ever so reluctantly bowed out in favour of the 18th. I hope you'll join me then as When Diplomacy Fails returns in September 2017 to detail that conflict, literally from this point onwards, from the Peace of Nijmegen onwards, up to 1699. A huge thanks to all of you lovely history friends and patrons for joining me for this incredibly long and wonderfully winding tale, and I really hope you're ready for the even more incredible and wonderful ones to come. Until then, thanks for listening, history friends. My name is Zach, and I'll be seeing you all very, very soon for something very, very special. Tune in on the 18th of May, 2017, for our fifth birthday, history friends and patrons all. I'm telling you now, you won't be disappointed. Take care, thanks for listening, and I'll be seeing you all then. When we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. 
with rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.